0: much time we take, and how many times, let me ask you, how how many of you have read the book of Genesis one time before? How many of you have read it twice? Three times? Four times? Five? Six? All right, okay, right? We're all like, well, I don't know, maybe, (laughs) probably, at least started it that many times, right? That's what happens a lot. We get through the first 15 to 20 chapters, and then we're like, Hey, hey, right. And it gets a little tougher. So we often drop out the first of the year. We don't want that. But, but nevertheless, we read it. But no matter what book of the Bible, and no matter how, how many times you've read that book of the Bible, every time we open up God's word and we ask his Holy Spirit to, to speak to us, to show his truth. You know what he does? He shows us his truth. The word never changes, but certainly he reveals himself and gives us a more deeper knowledge of him through his word. And I'm grateful for that. That we cannot exhaust his word. No matter how much time we take through it, no. No matter how many times we preach through a particular book, or or read or meditate, even on something as simple as John three sixteen, that God continues to give us the blessing of knowing Him more and more. And tonight, I want to begin by reading uh, Genesis chapter three verses one through six. So Genesis chapter three is literally where everything changes. If we were to look at the whole story of Genesis, the whole account of man. Uh, from, from the book of Genesis to even to today, we find that Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, and they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed, leaves us on this cliffhanger. If everything stays that way, everything is great, but what we know is chapter 3 leads us to literally hurling mankind off of the cliff and onward to sin, destruction, death, separation from God, and then to where now we have imperfect marriages, imperfect relationships. There's a continual struggle for survival, for food, for shelter against one another, where life goes from perfect and good and grand to woe is me, how could it get any worse? And it seems though that this world is getting worse and I believe it is because of the events of chapter three and as well as we see the promises of scripture in the book of Genesis early on that what God has made here will one day be remade because sin has polluted this place to such a degree that there is no getting it back no matter how many times I fill up my, recyc- my big, bright, blue recycling bin that the town gave to me. No matter how many times I fill that up, you know what happens? They dump it, they take it somewhere, and the next week I fill it back up again, and it's going to keep happening until this world is destroyed. There's nothing we can do to change the fact that our bodies are eventually going to get worse or that this world is going to be balled up one day and remade. Uh, but praise God that we do have that new creation to look forward to. And tonight, as we're going to begin... And you guys have less of a booklet and more of a book. Um, uh, But nevertheless, we're going to look tonight at verses 1 through 6, and and we're going to read it. But tonight we're going to answer some big questions about sin. There's a lot of questions regarding it, and I want us to study it a little bit before we really dive into the account of the fall of man. Let's begin by reading, though, tonight, just so we understand where we're at and what's taking place. In chapter 3, verse number 1, For God doth know that on the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as God's, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. Things go, as we talked about earlier, from they're both naked, the man and his wife, and are unashamed, to then we're about to find In verse number 7, after they both eat, in verse number 6, their eyes are opened, they're still naked, but now they realize the depth and what nakedness really is for the first time. They realize their sin, and everything changes. Not just for Adam and Eve, but for their sons and daughters, and for you and I, everything changes in this one moment. This reminds us, before we go any further, that you and I, even today, even though we're not in the garden, even though we're not the federal head of, of the human race ourselves, you and I are one decision away from changing your life forever, good, bad, or ugly. We have seen that it is one decision that can make your life all for the better or truly all for the worse. We must not forget such. Now, let's begin tonight by, I wanna, it's not here in your booklet, but before we get into the what is sin part of the big question about sin, I, I, I want to give you a few reasons why we need to study sin, all right? One of the grave dangers of our day is that we don't talk near enough about sin. Now, I'm all for one of understanding and believing and shouting it down that praise God, my sin and your sin, past, present, and future is under the blood of Jesus Christ if we've repented of our sins and trusted in Him alone for salvation. Praise the Lord for that. It's under the blood. It's covered. That we're bought, paid for. I don't have to worry about it anymore. However, I do believe that we must revisit the theology or the study of sin and understanding what it is, how terrible it is, how wicked it is, how you and I are sinners ourselves and our flesh and this constant battle with sin, because we're going to have this constant battle with sin until either the rapture happens or until we die and go on to be with the Lord. Either way, the, the outcome is the same. We have to go be with the Lord until our battle is done with sin. Uh, we're going to have to be off of this world until, uh, until then. Now, when we look at this, the reasons why we need to study sin is, first of all, we need to study sin to know God's holiness and vice versa. I believe the more we know about God's holiness and God's character, the more we will understand the depth and depravity of what sin itself is, let alone the depth of our own depravity and wickedness of how sinful we truly are. I believe another reason why we need to study sin is that we need to know truly what mankind is capable of and the direction that mankind is going. Because literally history of, human, of the human race changes in Genesis chapter 3. And it changes for the worse, and where everything else is going to continue to get worse. But praise God, we will see in chapter 3 that even though in the midst of sin breaking forth into the world, God then as well breaks forth and pronounces that there will be a Messiah, there will be a Redeemer, there is grace, there is mercy. And so that is the beauty of this. But we must study sin to see where it comes from, why it matters. There's not a lot today in many churches and, and many books and many things that talk about sin. Now, sin is now referred to as maybe a mistake, right? Or maybe a, an oopsie-daisy, right? A, a little mess up, right? It's far beyond those things. And we're going to see that tonight. We've got to understand that sin is sin. We have to understand what sin is to be able to rightly divide the word truth, to be able to proclaim the truth to a, a lost and a dying world. Why would we say it the world is lost and dying if we don't understand what sin is? If we don't understand what sin is, then we would all be universalists thinking that, well, then we're not really that bad and all that stuff. And we're gonna see the, the issues with that tonight. But ultimately we need to study sin, I believe, tonight for, for one reason. And, and it's the reason of, of that right up there. It's not the projector, it's the cross. If, if sin is not a thing, then the cross is, is pointless. If, if sin is not real, if sin is not that bad, then Jesus was brutally beaten and murdered upon the, the cross of Calvary for, for nothing. It, it, but if we understand sin and how wicked and vile and offensive it is to a holy and righteous God, then we understand not just God's holiness and, and justice there at the cross, But when we look, we then understand the depth and the riches of his love. That's what the cross does. The cross speaks that though sin abounds, grace abounds much more. And praise the Lord for that. So tonight, some big questions about sin. As a pastor, there's many questions we get. As believers in Christ, when we read the Bible or we look around the world, there's many questions that we have. There's many questions that I have. And I believe that, that having questions is great because it shows that our mind is engaged with the world around us. It shows that our mind is engaged with God. Our mind is engaged with his word. Our mind is engaged with reflecting upon our own life and seeing who we are. It is natural for mankind to ask several questions about themselves, right? Who am I, right? Why am I here? Is there other people out there, right? I, I don't know, right? I ain't seen none, but, but maybe. <laughs> I don't think so. That's another topic for another day, I guess. But, but we ask these questions as, as human beings. But when we study the Bible, when we study theology, I believe we also ask certain questions when it comes to sin. So first of all, the, the big question to start is, what is sin? Because tonight, even in a church like this that as fundamental and solid as possible, uh, if we were to go around and ask, what is sin? we would probably get many different answers. We would get some who would just say, well, you know, murder is sin. Okay, well, that's a type of sin. Okay, it's a specific thing. Tell me some more things, right? And we could get a whole list. Now, if we go outside of these walls, and now we go out into the community or to the world itself, we ask, what is sin? Some are going to say, what do you mean, what is sin? What is sin? I've never heard of that before, right? There's going to be others who say, well, you know, sin is what, you know, Preachers talk about, or sin is what the the Bible talks about, or sin is imaginary, or sin is not that bad. There's a a whole multitude of views, but I want to give us the basis tonight to understand what sin is. Now, this is the study of what we would call um, uh, harmatiology, which is where it comes from the Greek word armartia or armartan, which is the study of of sin itself. Now, here, what is sin? Um, I want to give you a few things. First, Good old trusty Dr. Ryrie here gives us, there are at least eight basic words for sin in the Old Testament and a dozen in the New. Now, the reason why I start off with that is because I want you to understand God includes a whole wide range of words for sin because there's a whole wide range of sins. Now, some of these words that are used are very broad in their meaning, while others are more severe or directive to a specific type of sin. You know how many words are used in the Bible, Old and New Testament, for grace? Three. So there, just in the Old Testament, there's there's eight, and a dozen in the New. And the reason shows us not that grace is, does not matter near as much, but it's much more simple to break down and, and show. But here he uses all these different words for these different specific sins, types of sins, severities of sins, different nuances of it. It shows us that God takes sin seriously. And if God takes something seriously, so should we. There must never be a batting of an eye or a winking or a nodding at sin. I believe perhaps the, the gravest of issues of our day is not only the fact that we view God improperly, but it is that we have so low of a view of God, and we have so low a view of sin that we cannot have a higher view of God. Because we don't understand the, the, the relationship, the balance, we don't understand how how truly perverse any sin is, mind you. And we're going to see a little bit of that tonight. Now, Wayne Grudem, he writes about this in sort of a, a, a defining sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. Sin is here defined in relation to God and his moral law. Sin includes not only individual acts such as stealing or lying or committing murder, but also attitudes that are contrary to the attitudes God requires of us. You want to know the sin that us Baptists probably commit more than anything? A bad attitude, or a wrong motive. It is the inward sin that no one else will ever see and that you probably won't even realize, or maybe you do, but you just don't think it's that bad because those are the sins that us good old Baptists wink at, right? We will shout down in our Baptist churches all about these wicked, vile sins of the world, but boy, it gets so quiet, you could almost think we're Presbyterian because we talk about pride or gossip and all these things. We've got to understand, sin is serious. And this also shows with Grudem here in his defining of this, that sin is not just something that happens with the hands or the feet or the tongue, but it begins in the mind and in the heart of man. Long before anyone has ever committed adultery, someone has then had their mind perverted, their heart deceived, and then their body goes swiftly towards destruction and ruin. And do not think that any of your sins that we may not commit outwardly or openly do not have the same thing. Your heart and your mind are uh, interwoven in the sense that if this one becomes corrupted, it is so much quicker for this to become corrupted, which then leads to, to wrong living. And this is why we must study things such as sin. This is why we must study theology. This is why we must study doctrine. To not only know what we believe and why we believe it, and to be able to explain it to others, but so that way our right thinking would lead to right believing, and our right believing would lead to right living. Religion, though, and unfortunately in many other churches like ours, preach the opposite, that we must have our outward cleansed before our inward is cleansed. You can try to clean up your outward all you want, but unless the inward is taken care of, the outward does not matter. God works from the inside out. It is the, the head and the heart must be affected before the hands will ever change where they go and what they do. Furthermore, Ryrie continues in dealing with this. He says, its basic meaning here, and this is very true, its basic meaning is to miss the mark. It is equivalent to the Greek word, harmatano, but missing the mark also involves hitting some other mark. When one misses the right mark and thus sins, he also hits the wrong mark. The idea is not merely a pass, a passive one of missing, but also an active one of hitting. Let me paint this picture for you here. okay? if this is perfection and total obedience of God's law and you're at the back door with a bow and arrow aiming for this, that's a tough shot. I don't care who you are. And then back there, that whole back wall is sin and disobedience. Just because you missed this one does not mean that's all that happens. That arrow is going to keep going and it's going to hit another mark. It's going to hit the mark of disobedience, of rebellion, uh, of sinfulness. And we see that it is, it is active here. And I love how he puts this. The idea is not merely a passive one of missing, but also an active one of hitting. And so we're going to see as we study Genesis chapter 3, that it's not just that Adam and Eve missed the mark, but it's that they totally hit another one, that they hit a different target, that they even actively are doing something that they know is wicked and wrong. And let's go ahead before we go any further in studying sin. The real reason why you sin is because you like to sin. The real reason why I sin is because I like to sin. And if we can't be humble enough to understand that or or to really think, yeah, that's the reason why I sin, right? We love to do as we're going to see in Genesis chapter 3 to blame the serpent, to blame our wife, to, to blame everything else except for our own lustful heart. But the reason why you sin is because of the very same one that will look you in the mirror tonight when you brush your teeth. And if you don't brush your teeth, you don't have to worry about that. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to have a whole congregation of people with funky teeth because they don't want to (laughs) see take that long look anymore. Now, then another author here, Platinga Jr., he brings about this sort of uh, other argument. By the way, he writes um, a book. His book is A a Brewery of Sin. It is dealing, it is called, uh, it's not, not what it's supposed to be. And his whole premise of the book is showing that sin itself shows us, and really is at its root, a breaking of having peace with God, and it is the opposite of how things were meant to be. In Genesis 1 and 2 is how things are meant to go, right? right? In Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, they were both naked, the man and his wife were not ashamed. That's how it's supposed to be. But sin breaks that. We go from paradise to paradise lost. And praise the Lord, one day we're going to have more and much more than just the Garden of Eden. We're going to have the the beautiful new Jerusalem wherein dwelleth righteousness and righteousness alone and where we will uh, be able to stand and to worship and to serve our Lord and King forever and ever. Now, here he writes, sin is not only the breaking of law, but also the breaking of covenant with one Savior. Sin is the smearing of a relationship, the grieving of one's divine parent and benefactor, a betrayal of the partner to whom one is joined by a holy bond. Shows some more severity there. It makes it a little bit more personal, isn't it? It would be like this. It would be, to try to put it in some perspective, you get into a fight with your spouse, right? And one of you decides in the heat of the moment to be so upset that you maybe take your handwritten vows or your marriage license and you rip it up and you take the ring and you throw it all out of anger. Now you say, well, that, that's marriage, that's different. Well, let's look at this. What is a covenant? A covenant is a promise. What is a marriage? A covenant is a promise. So what is our relationship to God? It is a covenant. He has covenanted himself with his to his people of by faith and to those who have entered into that covenant by faith in Christ alone now have the opportunity to know God in such a way, but yet our sin smears that relationship. It, it goes the opposite. It makes it not what it's supposed to be. It takes us from being naked and unashamed before God, cleansed and holy, to then going and, and being naked and, and totally undone and ashamed uh, because of who we are. We are laid open and bare before, before God and we are found wanting. We are found full of sin. We are found vile. We are found to where all of our righteousness then becomes a, a pile of filthy rags. It is as if all our righteousness is nothing but, but dung. It is worthless. There's nothing good about it. There's nothing that we can bring. There's nothing that we can do to redeem it or ourself. So where our sin does not just break the law, but it truly, in, in a sense, spits upon the face of the lawmaker. If you were to go out here today and go get a ticket for doing 10 miles an hour over the speed limit, you broke the law. But it's not the same as you walking up to the judge in the courtroom and spitting in his face. But when you sin against God, it's not only that you have sinned against him by going over his speed limit, but then you've walked up to him and spat in his face. Now, I know that sounds very severe because I don't know how many of us have maybe heard sin Sound that way, but if we were to get a hold of that, it just might make us think a little bit more. It just might lead us more to a life of repentance, of which we're called to lead, by the way. Repentance is not just one and done at salvation and then go, oh, I repented, I'm done. Repentance is a continual work, not to keep our salvation, but because of our salvation. Because I'm saved, I want to repent and need to repent to stay in relationship and fellowship with God. The same way with your spouse, if you do say something that you're not supposed to say, which none of us have ever done that, have we, right? Then what must you do? You must make it right. And by the way, you must not just make it right by showing up with a flower or two, right? You know, if I had two dozen roses, would it change your mind? No, we, we, we must come with words. We must come in even sorrowful heart and understanding that, that we have grieved and sinned against them and we want to make that fellowship right. You know, Dr. Bowman he was a professor of mine and, and taught it at, at Piedmont for, for forever. <laughs> back, when the, when the, back when the dirt was, was green, right? And, uh, but he used to talk about relationships, especially with us young men. And he'd say, you know, talk about, yeah, now guys, when, when, when you get in a little spat, if it's not that bad of one, you, you might can't fix it by, by, by taking your wife to, to, to Bojangles, right? Right? He said, "Or, or if it's if it's a it's, if it's a rougher one, you, you might have to take her to the K and W, right? And you can get her that, that, that two two meat and, and veg, right? And, and, but you got to get her a slice of pie, right? But he said, if it's real bad, it's it, it's gonna it's gonna hurt that pocket of yours. You're gonna have to take her to the to the village tavern, right? He said, now you'll know you'll know you messed up because." she's going to come up to you and you're going to, get, you're going to want to get a kiss and you're going to try, to try to plant one on her and she's going to go, right? And he said, that's when you know. It. He said, you got, you got to make it right. He said, because I like him straight on. Is what he used to say. Now, there's a lot of truth to it. When we sin, it should be your heart and my heart before God understanding what we've just done. That we have just sinned against our Father who has adopted us. We have just sinned against our king who we serve and who protects us. So there's a a great severity with this. Now, Platinga also continues in this, and he says, Sin offends God. That right there should be enough, right? That's that's good enough of a quote. But he goes on, he says, Sin offends God not only because it bereaves or assaults God directly as an impiety or blasphemy, but also because it breathes and assaults what God has made. For at its core, human sin is a violation of our human end, which is to build shalom and thus to glorify and enjoy God forever. Sin is not the way it's supposed to be, but rather it is a breaking of things that it's supposed to be. The word shalom in Hebrew is often heard or used as a greeting, but it is that of of peace, and it's sort of its simplest idea. It is of giving or speaking of peace. And so when one might greet another with the phrase shalom, is that it is saying peace be to you, your relationship, your family, and your finances, every aspect of your life, may it be the way that it's supposed to be, right? May it be a blessed, peaceful uh, life. So if shalom is the Hebrew word for peace, and, and what he is making the argument in his book, if shalom is things being how they are meant to be, Right? And it's how things were in the garden up until this point in Genesis 3 that sin has then brought about its disruption. Sin, where there is peace in Genesis 2, sin comes in and brings destruction. Where there is life in Genesis 2, Genesis 3, the sin brings death. Where there is unity and fellowship and relationship in Genesis 2, what happens when Genesis 3 comes and we have sin? We have the, the opposite, the breaking of all those things. See, Adam's job is not to make sure that the the garden's grass doesn't grow too high. His job is to maintain, by faithful obedience, the peace that he has with God, his wife, and all of creation. And the moment that he disobeys, what happens? Every relationship that he's got breaks, falls apart, crumbles. And the creation itself then begins to groan, a cry of begging and a longing for redemption. It also reminds us as well, though, that this author, as he writes, that there is no peace in our sin. You think about this, when you were lost, whether you got saved at a young age, whether you got saved well into your adult life, there was no true peace outside of knowing Christ. There was no true peace when you did not have forgiveness and redemption. This is why the Bible tells us in Colossians chapter 1, and having made peace through the blood of His cross, unless we have been covered by His blood uh, through literally, in a sense, spiritually bowing before His cross and and putting our faith in Him, casting our life upon Him, that there is no peace in our life, no real peace. This is why people search for peace from everything, from, from drugs to sex to relationships to jobs to money. Boats and cars and and everything else imaginable. Education even. Even religion and good works. And never ever find peace. Countless religious leaders of cults throughout the world in history have been recorded in, in having these last dying moments where they say that they have no peace and they wish they had it. Can you imagine such a thing? Peace truly only comes from knowing God. Now, While sin can be against someone, I want us to understand that sin is always, always against God. You and I often think of sins in such of murder, right? You sinned against somebody, right? You murdered them. Adultery, right? You you sinned against not only your spouse, but then someone else's, right? Uh, How about lying, right? You've sinned against that person you lied to or lied about. But... And each and every one of those, before there is the sin against that individual that you've sinned against, there is the sin that goes against God because every sin is against God. Every sin tells God from your own heart and action that you know better than He does and that His law, that His Word, is of none effect and has no meaning in your life. Right? When Pastor Joe sins, you know what he is telling God? That he knows better than God? When, when you sin... You know what you're telling God? You you are saying that you are God. Sin, the very middle of it, as Dr. Bill to also say, the very middle of sin. S-I-N. And he used to say with pride. P-R-I-D-E. What's in the middle? I. It is the very root of idolatry. It's found there. Take your Bible and turn with me to Psalm 51 tonight for just a moment. Because if you don't believe me that every sin that you sin is, is against God first, I want to show that to you. Not to prove myself right, but rather for us to really understand the reality and depth of sin. Psalm 51. Psalm 51 here, as, as you probably know, you might even have a little heading in your, in your Bible there. A psalm of David when Nathan the prophet came unto him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Y'all have heard about that, right? Yeah. I remember asking a group one time, preaching about, about sin and things, and asking them, tell me about David. The first thing that they said was not David and Goliath. The first thing they all said was his sin. But you know what God had to say about him? He was a man after his own heart. Even after and in the midst of all of it. But I believe a very key thing for David and for you and I is repentance. Look at Psalm 51. He begins, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. What were his transgressions? If we're just looking at that immediate context of that particular sin, we got adultery, and then what we've got, what we would consider and could consider murder, of getting his, one of his best soldiers Killed and trying to cover up his sin. Sin upon sin upon sin. None of which is a good, right? The one sin was bad enough, but then we add more sin to try to cover up our sin because when you and I sin and try to cover it up, we are literally doing so with our own filthy rags. It is, it is mopping your kitchen floor with oily rags, right? It, it makes no sense, but that's what we do. Now here he continues and he says, Blot out my transgressions, wash me throughly from mine iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Repentance starts at that not only that acknowledgement of our sin, but the acknowledgement that only God can forgive sin and that only God can bring about the mercy that is needed to forgive us of our sin. He says, for I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, and thee only have I sinned. And done this evil in my sight that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in my and, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Here he he totally understands and realizes not only his sin, but he realizes that his sin with Bathsheba and against his his fellow man is truly and at its very root against God. So when you gossip dear good old Baptist, you sin against God. And you sin against that dear brother or sister. When you fail to be the spouse or the worker that you're meant to be in either spot, right? Before you sin against that spouse or your boss or your co-worker, you've sinned against God. Now, this doesn't mean, well, well does that mean just in everything I do, I'm just, all I do is sin? Well, they're not necessarily what this does mean though is that we have got to get to the place where we understand what sin really is, how offensive it actually is, so that we might just actually repent. And I believe that it is through real repentance that there is real, genuine change of our hearts and of our homes and of our churches. But without repentance of sin, without acknowledging and understanding sin, it will never get to the place where homes will be mended, where hearts will be uh, made whole, where churches will experience real revival. Your sin and any sin is an open act of treason and rebellion against the king of kings. And until we understand that, then we have no idea what sin is. But Ting also writes, all sin is first and finally a God word for. Sin is a culpable and personal affront to a personal God. So what is sin? Sin could be said tonight that it is an attack against God. It is an insurrection of the highest order against the Holy One of the universe. So let me ask you tonight, is all sin the same? This is a question that is normally asked by those who are trying to make a particular sin less egregious than it actually is. Perhaps the greatest problem with sin is that we don't understand its severity. Is all sin the same? First of all, yes, legally speaking right meaning this we look at Adam's sin and you and I would make the argument it ain't that bad he just ate a a fruit but it was the same as the children of Israel throwing their babies in the fire to Molech legally speaking right legally speaking as Grudem writes in terms of legal standing before God any one sin Even what may seem to be a very small one makes us legally guilty before God and therefore worthy of eternal punishment. Sadly, according to studies today um, done by uh, the State of Theology Group, Ligonier Ministries, uh, even the Lifeway Ministry, um, what, what they have found is that the vast majority of professing believers do not believe that even the smallest of sin deserves hell. There might even, and to be honest with you, in a room this size, there was probably someone in here tonight who would say, well, just a little white lie, and if that's the only sin that a little church lady in all of her 90 years of life commits, one little white lie, that that does not deserve hell. You're right, it deserves much more than hell. And I believe that's the issue. There have been those who have said, how could God punish Adam and Eve so severely? And I think they're asking the wrong question. The question is how and why would God even allow them to live after such? Why was God's wrath not infinitely that much more severe? The reason why we ask questions like why was God so severe is because one, we don't know God the way that we should. Two, we don't know the depth of sin the way that we should. We have not stared long enough at the glory of who God is, and we have just barely glanced at sin. Both need a little bit longer of a looking. Now, though, the other side of this coin is that is all sin the same? No. As far as results in relationally speaking, right? Think about this when the law was given, as Moses writing it and giving it to the people, there are some sins that deserve fines, punishments, but there's other sins that say, as soon as this sin happens, pick up a rock and stone him to death, right? Even the stoning of, of oxen, that mess up, right? I mean, any it, there were some sins that it, no matter who it was, what it was, when it was, how it was, if that took place, pick up some rocks, throw them until they're dead, Right? I I mean, we we think about this, so so there are some differences here. Even today, right? Think about this legally for ourselves. And by the way, the legal systems of most of the free worlds today, they're based out of Scripture, even off the just simply Ten Commandments. We find that murder today has a different result than breaking the speed limit, right? One's a ticket, the other one, life or, or, or death, right? Life in prison or, or, or potential death. So as Grimm also writes, On the other hand, some sins are worse than others in that they have more harmful consequences in our lives and in the lives of others and in terms of our personal relationship to God as Father. They arouse his displeasure more and bring more serious disruption to our fellowship with him. So there's two kinds of sin, theologically speaking. One is a sin of commission. All right. This is what we would call a sin of action. This is a deliberately going out of my way to do something I know I'm not supposed to. All right. This is where it's like, I know the speed limit's 55, but I am going to do 63 instead of on cruise control because that's not too bad. And what have we just done? We've just broken the law and we've justified breaking it. That is commission, right? But then there's the other side, and that is the, what is called the sins of, of omission. This is what I would call a sin of inaction. Right, this is where we know we're supposed to do something, and then we don't act upon it. All right, so as we're going to see in Genesis three, when Adam eats of the fruit, he commits in that action, I believe, both the sin of commission and omission. Commission in the sense that he willfully takes the fruit from his wife, whatever that fruit is, and eats of it, in disobeying God, disregarding what God had specifically told Adam but there is an omission in the sense of inaction while his wife is standing there talking to a serpent that he does nothing. And we're going to look more into that oh, probably in two weeks, but, <laughs> but we're going to look at the severity of that and what that means and why that's important about where Adam is and, and, and why. Let's fail do what we should do. Let me give you maybe a more practical example of sin of omission. When you know You're supposed to maybe share the gospel. We talked about Sunday with somebody and, and you know, and you find every excuse in the book not to, the inaction. Inaction can be just as sinful. Now here's where we're going to end tonight. Sin is irrational. Grudem writes about this. He says, it really did not make sense for Satan to rebel against God let me pause there. Y'all ever thought about that? You Ever thought about being a, an angel in heaven and then go, I want more than this. See, for you and I in this fallen world and our fallen bodies, with fallen natures, we look at heaven and we go, I can't wait because it, it's only going to be better than this, right? This is the closest to hell I'll ever be. Praise the Lord for that, right? This is great, right? Heaven is going to be wonderful. Can you imagine thinking the opposite in heaven? It's, it's irrational. It's mind-boggling to even to even think upon. Gruden continues to write, and he says, It really did not make sense for Satan to rebel against God in the expectation of being able to exalt himself above God. Nor did it make sense for Adam and Eve to think that there could be any gain in disobeying the words of their Creator. These were foolish choices. The persistence of Satan in rebelling against God, even today... It is still a foolish choice, as is the decision on the part of any human being to continue in a state of rebellion against God. I would say tonight to any of you who do not know Christ as Lord and Savior, to any of you who might doubt, to any of you who might be questioning God or, or, or not wanting to submit to the Lord, I want to tell you right now, it is not only foolish and irrational, but it is an incredibly dangerous game. We do not have, have time to play. We do not have time to go, I'll wait till I'm older. We don't have time to wait till I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll get it right when I'm on my deathbed. There's many who die without a deathbed. We must understand that today is the day of salvation. The idea of today is the day is right now. Now is the time to trust Christ. Not later, because there's going to be a day where before you are possibly ready or not, death is coming you will stand before God either cleansed by the blood of Jesus or you will stand before Him guilty, not only deserving of hell, but one day to be cast there into a lake of fire forever, forever, and forever. And once you reach 10,000 years, you still got forever to go. I cannot imagine time like that. I can't imagine forever. I can't imagine forever in the glories of heaven, let alone Imagine forever in hell. The great truth tonight is this, though, that through the precious blood of Jesus Christ, through the seed of the woman that is promised in Genesis 3.15, there is redemption and forgiveness for all sins and for all time and for all people who would simply trust in Christ. Tonight, if that's you, trust Jesus. Tonight, if you already have trusted Jesus in your are living as a saved child of God, tonight, repent anyways. I'm sure there's something probably on your heart in your life that you go, you know, I've got to get that right. I might have a closer walk with the Lord. Or maybe there's something that maybe instead you just need to go, thank you, God, that I'm saved. Thank you for forgiveness, for mercy, because none of these things have we earned or deserved, but all are a free gift of His grace. Tonight, may we not be as the fool in continuing to sin. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. May we simply repent and trust the Lord day in and day out. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank You for this time. We thank You for Your Word. Thankful that we can look at such a deep subject, Lord, that truly I believe that even my own heart, Lord, I don't fully have the grasp and the grip upon how wicked my sin is and how treasonous my sin is against You, Your law. Lord, I pray, God, that tonight, if there is one who does not know You, that tonight that they would would be broken of their sinful condition and would trust in You for salvation, that You would save them to the uttermost. As well, God, tonight that each one of us that are saved, Lord, that we would praise You for Your goodness, for Your faithfulness, for the salvation that You have freely given to us. and. Lord, that we would see the irrationality of our sinful choices, that we would see the severity of our sin against you daily, and God, that we would lead and live a life of repentance. God, and we turn to you, trust in you, and we'll be filled of you so that we might be used by you and for your glory in all things. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, y'all are dismissed.